You know, often in life, uh, most of the time, in fact, we don't call our own shots. You know, we enter life, we live life, we are in circumstances we don't necessarily choose. And oftentimes we're faced with what we consider difficult or distasteful, tedious things. Often those come in the way of commands. We talked a week ago about people being under authority. You know, if I'm at work, if I'm at school, if I'm a child still living at home and I'm under the authority of someone else, oftentimes there are commands I've got to do whether I I want to or not. So most of the time I see commands that I've got to do as something probably distasteful, tedious, something I kind of got to work myself up to get excited about or to do at all. Once in a while, though, you'll get a command that you're glad to get. You'll get a command that you think is okay. I'm trying to think of an example. You know, if you're a 16-year-old young man, and there's a few in, in here with us this morning, if you're a 16-year-old man, you just get your driver's license, and your mom tells you she tells you to go to the store to get the milk and eggs that she needs, you're thrilled, right? It's a happy command because you're being told to do something that's in your best interest, in a sense. You get to do what you want, and someone's commanding you to do it. I think, unfortunately, for many Christians, and certainly for those in the world, the thought of living under God's authority and therefore being subject to God's command, it has that sense for most of us that there's this distasteful, tedious, troublesome stuff we've got to do because God's told us to. And it's burdens we'd rather not carry. It's things we'd rather not do, but we're going to squirrel ourselves up get ourselves going so we can work ourselves up to keeping those commands. And, and I say it's unfortunate because I think most of us as Christians hold that same view. And, you know, this is exactly not what God's commands are like or lead to. Uh, God's commands lead to life. 1 John 5, 3 says this, This is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. Because God is the God of all life, when He gives you commands, those commands always lead to more life. This morning we're going to look at three commands that I think are not only not burdensome, but are to me at least delightful. I'm calling them happy commandments. You can see if you agree as we work through them. We're in 1 Thessalonians 5 again this morning will be in three very short verses. Hard to get any shorter than this. If you want to rack up credit points for memorizing verses, memorize these three. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. <clears throat> if you remember, Paul's winding down this letter to the Thessalonican church, this early church he visited. And he's talked about a number of things. This is a persecuted group. We talked about kind of the controversial elements probably a month or so back. The elements about the rapture of the church, this future hope this early group of Christians had that Christ would one day come back, call them to Himself, they'd be with Him forever. But that as soon as He was done with this heavenly call, this rapture, He plants His feet right back on the earth and He gets right back down to brass tacks by telling us how to live with each other while we're here. The rapture still hasn't happened, so this has been good advice for the last 2,000 years. So He's talked about things like the way we think about and interact with those in authority over us. He talked about having a mindset that accommodated the people we're interacting with, recognizing what the need of the moment is and interacting 
appropriately. He talked about forgiving those even who intentionally do us wrong and blessing them in return. This morning, Paul continues with God's word to the Thessalonians and to us with three short verses, three commands, what I consider three happy commands. 1 Thessalonians 5.16, Rejoice always. That's an easy memory verse. Pray without ceasing. And in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Short verses. Let me read them again, just so you didn't miss it. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Three short verses. Three staccato commands, ending with the assurance that these commands do, in fact, represent God's will for our life. I don't know if you remember way back when, when we were in chapter 1 and then earlier in chapter 5, we said that this was an epistle that was bookended by the Holy Trinity of Christian attributes or virtues, faith, hope, and love. Paul opened the epistle with faith, hope, and love. In the last chapter, earlier in chapter 5, he introduced faith, hope, and love. Here he's introducing a new Holy Trinity, if you will, of commands, rejoice always, pray always, and give thanks always. If you take this too literally, you get the thought that you've got to be schizophrenic at least to do this, right? That is that you've got three commands to do something different simultaneously all the time while in the meantime living the rest of life and taking care of everything else. And of course, that's not exactly what Paul means. But rather that our attitude or that our default position or the bent of our mind, our will, our thinking, our thoughts tends towards rejoicing, prayer, and giving thanks. God's commands to rejoice, pray, and give thanks are commands that actually lead to life. They are, for that reason, in my mind, happy commands. You know, back in John 10, Jesus said that He came into this world to give abundant life. And it's commands like this that actually get you to appreciate or enjoy or the place where you experience that abundant life, He said, he came to give. If you think about this, because Christians are new creatures, we have a new spiritual nature in us, we have a new life that didn't exist before we trusted Christ and the Holy Spirit came into us. These three, joy, prayer, and thanks, should be as natural for us as Christians who have the Holy Spirit and who know Christ, should be as natural for us as swimming is for fish or flying is for birds or as natural as eating or drinking or breathing in the air, we don't even think about every moment of every day. Joy is the fruit of the Spirit. Prayer is the language of the Spirit. And thanks is the effect of the Spirit in our life. We'll walk through these three individually. I'll focus most of my time on the first, on rejoicing, and hopefully do more than token coverage of the other two. But starting with rejoice always, the first happy command... To rejoice is just to feel joy or to express it. And the dictionary defines joy as great happiness, great pleasure, delight, gladness. Now think about this for just a second. You come up to your parent, your father. He says, I've got a command for you. And he looks at you and he points his finger at you and he says, be happy. Have a good time. That's what God is saying here. Rejoice. It's a command to be happy to be glad, to see life as, as filled with gladness and joy and happiness. This is a command I can live with. 
This is the teenager getting the keys to the car. God's telling me, and he's telling you, and told the Thessalonians, be happy. This is an easy command for me. I don't have to work at this. Be happy. Take joy in life. This should be just a reminder to us. It probably isn't. I mean, for many of us, I'm sure that we don't live the kind of joy-filled lives that we're called to. But think of this. Think of joy this way. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit of Christ in us. So that when we feel and express joy, we are being as spiritual as when we are loving or patient or kind. Does that make sense? Because joy is a fruit of the Spirit, because rejoicing is inherently a part of the nature of God Himself, when you as a Christian rejoice, when you are filled with joy, you are being as spiritual as when you feel filled with love or peace or the other fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5. To be a joyful Christian is inherently to be Christ-like. If you're a serious-minded Christian, that's great. I consider myself serious-minded. If you're dour and sour and little, that's not Christ-like, and it's not what God has commanded for you. Christians should be on this earth the most joyful people you know. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's supposed to be ours. We're commanded to be joyful. And when we do, we represent Christ's life more accurately, I think, in the world. Listen to what David said in Psalm 4, verse 7. He said, You have filled my heart, speaking to God, You have filled my heart with greater joy than when their grain and new wine abound. Now, two thoughts here. God has given me joy. God has given me joy. It's from Him, from Him to give. So God has given me joy, and this joy is so great that it's greater than any other source of joy you can find in this earth. When David says there's greater joy from God than when their grain and new wine abound, you know, if you live in the agricultural age, not many of us do anymore, uh, when's the best time of the year? When is life at its best? It's when the crops are in. You've made it through the storms or the dry season or the rains or whatever, and the barley's in the barn, and the wine is in the vat. And what do you do? You celebrate. This is party time when the crops are in. Well, David says of God, the source of his joy, he says, I've got more joy from God than any other source than the best, fullest source I could think of, life on earth. I've got more joy from God than the happiest time I could have on this earth apart from him. Joy comes from God and from knowing God. Now, if you ask yourself, or if I ask you, uh, do you want to be joyful or happy or glad in life? Almost all of us, I think, would say, yeah. And the Thessalonians, of course, would have said the same thing. Well, of course I want to be happy. Of course I want my life to be characterized by gladness. If that's the case, why does God, through Paul, have to command them to rejoice? And why, when we hear this today, do we need to stop in our tracks and say, God is actually telling me to do something, to rejoice? Why does God have to tell me to rejoice? Remember, for Paul's initial audience, the Thessalonians, uh, we sit here, we're in a nice gym. I hope you like the gym anyway. We're in a nice gym, great seats. We've got heat, you know, on a winter day. We've got donuts in the hall. Life's pretty good. Life's pretty easy. But put yourself back in their shoes for a minute. You remember... I'm not sure what all their lives were like before they came to Christ, but you know what happened as soon as they became Christians? 
life hit the fan because persecution immediately followed their conversion in this Roman city. Sorry. Uh, Persecution came in immediately. So these guys, people in the group Paul's writing to, they've probably been beaten. They've probably been in prison. They've been fined. They've had property seized. This was the normal means of persecution in the Roman world. No real due process there in times like this. So the people to whom Paul's writing, their dappers are down. And they're going through hard times. And you know, the truth is persecution for us, most of us aren't going to see persecution. But maybe things like it in your life or mine, um, chronic difficulties, uh, strained relationships over a long period of time. I'm not sure what you'd insert in the blank for you. But difficulties in life over a long period of time tend to lead us towards depression and a sense of hopelessness. So Paul's saying to this crowd that's probably tempted to sort of give up hope and joy, he's telling them, in fact, he's not, only, he's not recommending it, he's commanding them for God to rejoice in spite of the persecution. Uh, this is not Pollyannish thinking. And you think about the guy who's writing these words. Uh, read Paul's biography, 2 Corinthians and Philippians. This is a guy even early in his career. He's been beaten. He's been stoned. He'll be imprisoned. He'll be suffered shipwreck. He'll eventually be beheaded. This is the guy who's telling them to rejoice. And like him, they were going through difficult times. But Paul tells them in the midst of difficulty, not wishful thinking, choose to rejoice anyway. By the way, this is not to say... All of these are kind of made in not only the imperative, but always, always rejoice. This does not mean that we don't weep. Uh, you know, Paul says elsewhere, Romans twelve fifteen, 15, uh, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. There are seasons in life when you'll suffer loss, real loss, the loss of loved ones. I'm thinking of Paulette recently. Uh, when you lose a spouse, you weep. And there's a season of weeping, but it's not a hopelessness. And I think that's the distinction. And so the call to rejoice always doesn't mean you don't weep, but I do think it means this. It means when you've had that season of weeping, don't prolong that. But make it your mindset to return to the seasons of joy as quickly as possible because seasons of weeping that last too long tend to lead to depression and discouragement, and that's not what we're after. Paul had said in chapter 1, verse 6, that when these guys heard the gospel... They had this initial joy, but he knows for them it's failing. And so here again, he says, even in the midst of tribulation, guys, you're commanded to rejoice. Paul speaks of joy five times in this letter, and I think it's for that reason. He's reminding people while they're down, choose joy. You know, sometimes too, because of the difficulties of life, you may find... uh, mustering or thinking of life joyfully in your current circumstances as a difficult task. The Thessalonians would have had that same problem, but they did this too. They had this hope that Paul fueled in chapter 5, that Christ was going to come, he was going to return for them, and they'd be with him forever. So that they had a joy now that was based on a future hope. And sometimes for you and I, if you're looking around at life and you feel like, I don't see the joy in my life right now. And maybe you'll see seasons or times like that. 
you can always, with them, you can look at the future hope you have in Christ. And guys, you know what? No matter how long you live on the earth, it's a wink compared to eternity. Our time here on the planet, if you live to 100 or 120 years like Moses, you know, read Psalm 90. He says, we're like breaths. We're like shadows. Our time here, no matter if it seems like it's dragging on forever, it's short. Christians have a hope for eternity, Psalm 16, where there's joy forever. Where it's like a family reunion or celebration that never ends. That's our future. Or you think of Jesus in Hebrews 12 too. It says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. It was a future joy that helped Christ go even to the cross. This theme of joy and rejoicing, by the way, these are major themes, both Old and New Testament. This isn't one here or one there. This is throughout the scriptures. Uh, Proverbs 17, 22 says, A joyful heart is good medicine, but a broken spirit dries up the bones. You probably know this. If you feel happy emotionally, if you feel joyful, you feel in life generally better. You feel more energetic. Joy is like, if you will, a spiritual pep pill. It gives you a sense of energy or well-being that pills cannot give you. But it has that kind of benefit or effect. But a broken spirit dries up the bones. You know if you're feeling depressed, discouraged, despondent. Don't you just feel like you're sick and wasting away? But joy is that sense of health that brings strength with it. When a Christian loses joy, we lose the spiritual energy or vitality to face life. When we lose joy, it is like being sick or anemic. There's a funny uh, passage in Nehemiah 8. I'm laughing at them. I don't, they weren't laughing at the time. But in Nehemiah 8, uh, real briefly, you remember Ezra and Nehemiah? These are guys who lived in the nation of Babylon. Um, Sodom Hussein's part of the world. Uh, they lived in Babylon because God had sent them as captives there under Nebuchadnezzar. But when the captivity was over, God sends them back. And Ezra the priest comes back to Jerusalem and he rebuilds the temple. And Nehemiah comes back. He's the governor and he rebuilds the wall. And when the work's all done, temple's up, walls are up, people are back in the city that was destroyed. The Feast of Trumpets, Ezra and Nehemiah call all the people to the city to have this great celebration. And during this great celebration, the people stand up while Ezra and the priests read the book of the law. And we don't know how much of it. I don't think they read uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. doesn't tell us what part was read. But part, at least, of God's covenant with Israel through Moses on Sinai. So part of what we would think of as the, the Ten Commandments plus. Okay? So, <clears throat> day of celebration. We're back and we're reading God's Word. It all sounds good. Listen to what happens. They have to tell the people, this day is holy, Nehemiah 8, 9, to the Lord your God. So don't mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. What's with that? And then he said to them, go eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, send portions to him who has nothing prepared for this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. This is what's happening. These people, they'd live without the law, guys. And if you read Old Testament, you know, at certain periods, the nation didn't even have the law. They found it again. That's sort of what happened here. 
So these guys have come back from captivity. They've rebuilt the temple and the walls. They're ready for the good life. And somebody lays down this list of commandments on them. And what's their response? They're weeping. At this great celebration, they're singing the blues because they feel like someone's just laid this onerous burden on their back. And so this is the response. Guys, no, it really is a day of rejoicing and the joy of the Lord is your strength. When you need strength to do the things God commands you to do, don't look at yourself, Nehemiah says. Look at God. The source of your strength is joy. And by the way, this is just one of those reasons. If you're going to be a healthy, vital Christian, you've got to be joyful because God's strength to you and to me comes in the manner in, or in the way of joy. If you don't have joy, you will not have spiritual vitality. And ultimately, Christ is the source of that joy and therefore of that strength. And think about this. If you're a Christian, you have the knowledge that your sins are forgiven. So you've got a clear conscience. You know, if my conscience is weighed down by the wrongs I've done, joy is one of the last things I can get to. But when I know my conscience is clear, my sins are forgiven, I can get to joy. Christ's presence by His Spirit. You remember Jesus told His disciples, when I leave, you're not going to be orphans. I'm going to come to you and it's going to be in the way of my Holy Spirit. So as Christians today, we are not living life on our own. It's not by our guile, our strength. We've got the Holy Spirit Himself inside us, the source of all joy. And with the Thessalonians, we've got that sure hope of where we're going to be forever, with Christ in heaven forever. We've got all the reason in the world to be joyful. The Old Testament is a, uh, includes a book of praise. I'm thinking of the Psalms. I've been hanging out in them recently. You read Psalms, and there are the imprecatory Psalms, that is, where we're calling God's wrath down on the enemy, you know. And there's, there are those placating Psalms where I'm hurt and I need God's help. But one of the constant themes of the Psalms you'll see is joy. So, for instance, at Psalm 27, verse 6, I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. You know, if you watch uh, KU crowd, let's say, had they won. (laughs) The KU fans, when they win the game, are like what? They're shouting for joy. I do think that professional sports or college sports, that the enthusiasm and exuberance you see at college sports is the closest thing I can think of to the kind of joy that's enjoined on us. This shouting for joy. You know, when we're at sporting activities, we forget ourselves and we're elated and we're thrilled. Well, that's what's going on here in the Psalms in the temple. You know, I think if we come together as a church regularly and you see a dour, sour crowd, I mean, I'm thinking, what are we doing? You know, being with saints, gathering around Christ, is better than KU winning. It really is. Psalm 92.4, O Lord, you have made me glad by what you have done. I will sing for joy at the works of your hands. I'm singing for joy as I contemplate God and the things he's done. If you're saved, if you've trusted in Christ, you know the author of life, you know the Savior of the world, 
You are those who know heaven is your future home, where there's joy like an overflowing river all the time, forever and ever, so that joy and expressing that joy should be an easy command. It should be a happy command. Do you know joyless people? I'll bet you do. Are you a joyless person? If you know joyless people, do you want to be around them? I'll bet you don't. And if you look at someone else and you think they're without joy, you know, they just drain the life out of people around them, right? That's what happened. You don't want to be around them. You wouldn't want to be like them then, right? And you know, I'm convinced that this is what happens. We don't tell ourselves we want to be sad. We want to be depressed. We want to be discouraged. I'm choosing against joy. That's not the way this works. I think this is what happens. We lose our joy by little increments, bit by bit. In other words, we fail to obey the command through neglect because it requires a decision of our mind, a bend of our will to say, to choose, sometimes against the things that are going on in our life, that we're going to choose to rejoice anyway. We don't tell ourselves we don't want to be joyful. We get there by little bits through neglect. So this is what I'd say about joy. Remind yourselves to rejoice. You could do this a number of ways. You could post a scripture verse, this verse, two words, rejoice always, on the mirror so that you see it in the morning when you get up. You could put a scripture verse at the coffee pot in the morning or in your car or whatever. But it's not that we choose not to be joyful. It's through neglect, typically little by little. We do have to work at staying joyful. God looks down at us and he says, be happy. Obey me, children. Be happy. It's a happy command. The second happy command, and I'll spend less time on the second two, is pray always. Pray always. If joy and rejoicing give us strength for the journey, then prayer is the conversation we're having on the journey or along the way. By the way, again, to pray without ceasing doesn't mean to drive up the highway to Benedictine and join the abbey or the monastery. It doesn't mean that we're cloistered. And it doesn't mean that we're somehow distant, holy people, whatever the concept attached to that is. But it at least means this. It means that we have an attitude of constant communication with God in which we talk to God. And remember, prayer, if we're talking to each other, we don't call it prayer, do we? It's just talking. It's just communication. But that's all prayer is. It's just communication to God. But it's just communication. It's just talking to God. It's the normal conversation of a Christian's life. Praying affirms two things for me. It reminds me that I'm in a relationship with God. And it reminds me that I'm not sufficient for life on my own. I was going to say as an example that you don't need to tell a husband to talk to his wife. I was. And then I thought about it and I thought, no, that's not a good example. I could say you don't have to tell a wife to talk to her husband. That's a good example. You guys are really slow. Exceptionally slow. I really did. I had to tell a husband, but then I knew it won't work because that's the thing, right? 
If you go to, if you're going to get married, you go to premarital counseling, what do they talk to you about? Morning and night. Communication. Good communication. If you're in strife in your marriage and you go to counseling, what do they talk to you about? Good communication. Because that is your relationship. If you're in a relationship and somebody's got to tell you to talk to them, not much of a relationship, is it? You shouldn't have to tell one friend to talk to another friend. But that's the command here. God, through Paul, is simply reminding us to talk to him. To tell him the things that are on our mind. And you know, God's sufficient in and of itself. If you pray to him, if you talk to him, uh, you bless yourself. God's entirely sufficient apart from us. It pleases God when we do those things that honor him. But it doesn't make God more than he is. And it doesn't detract from God when we don't obey and we don't pray. We are the better when we pray, when we draw near to God. And on our side of the relationship, we talk, we communicate. This command should be for those who know God as their Father and Christ as their Savior. Just another reminder to talk, to pray. Think about this too. I don't want to render this down to mental health. But you know, praying is one of the best things a person can do for their own mental health. Emotionally. They've done studies. uh, Some of these have come out a little unevenly. But more often than not, people in hospitals, people who have been sick, who pray and are prayed for, feel better and get better a little bit more statistically than people who do not. And I'm convinced part of that is just because people who pray are turning over the loads of life to someone else. They're carrying less burdens. They have less anxiety. For you and I, praying to God, talking to God, it's good mental health. Praying is one of the healthiest things you and I can do. Think of this too. Praying is one of the best things you can do for others. If you know someone, you love them, you care about them, one of the best things you can do is pray for them. I've had times fairly frequently, more more than I could number, when I've had trouble keeping the happy commands. And my daughters or my wife knows that. And I'll feel like the fog is lifting and that suddenly I feel better than I did before I can see life a little bit more clearly again. And I've pretty much come to know that somebody was praying for me. That's the deal. We can pray for, talk to God about someone else, what someone else needs. Ask God to help them where they're at. Prayer is the language of those who know and love Christ. This is certainly no boast. I pray all the time. I I don't need this command. I pray all the time, every day. I couldn't imagine life not. And this is not to minimize, uh, this is not overstatement. I'm not sure I can hold on to reality and sanity apart from praying all the time. Because life is overwhelming. And you and I on our own, we don't have the resources adequate to deal with all the things that come our way. And we were never intended to live life on our own. When we're trying to do that, we're going against the grain. So when we pray, and we pray constantly, we pray always, we pray without ceasing, this is a happy command because, guys, we feel better for the prayer and the communication. We are better for drawing near to God and talking to Him about the things that matter this command to pray, this happy command. It's a command to life and sanity and fellowship. 
And then the last of the three, give thanks all the time. The third happy command. Ask yourself, this is an easy question. Are you thankful all the time? Do you tend to be thankful just as the epitome of your life? Are you characterized as being a thankful person? This is not quite as easy as a command as rejoice always, but it's pretty close. And think about this. When we give thanks, especially intentionally so, not just spur the moment something hits us, when we choose to give thanks to God, we turn from things that may discourage us or depress us, and we fill our minds with the thoughts that uplift our souls. When I choose to give thanks, I turn from things that would otherwise discourage me, and I set my mind on things that are inherently encouraging, and then I turn to God and say, thank you for those positives. When we give thanks, we remind ourselves in God's presence of all the ways He has blessed us. And you know this... Conduct your own survey. If you have people in your life that you look at and you say, they are happy people, I'll bet you find that they're thankful people. Thankful people tend to be happy. Giving thanks every day to God, the God who's given us life and breath and promises for eternal life to come, should be an easy and a happy commandment. To command thankfulness. As a way of life, God liberates us from small-minded, self-centered living and liberates us to live a life as big as God is. Thankless people are small-minded people whose vision doesn't rise higher than themselves and their view of the world. Thankful people can look around, even at difficult things, things that they otherwise wouldn't be thankful for, and still find cause to look up to God and say, Thank you, Lord, for the blessings in my life. You can give thanks silently. Uh, If you're out and eating, you might bow your head and thank God for the meal in front of you. Or you might, throughout the day, quietly say thank you to God for whatever He's done. Or you can thank God publicly in your conversation with other Christians. By the way, that's a great thing to do. I'm so thankful God did this for me. You encourage yourself, but you also encourage that other person. Giving thanks, by the way, uh, back to the Old Testament again, giving thanks was a normal part of life in the temple period. If you read in Leviticus especially, you'll see there's all these sacrifices called thank offerings. Thank offerings. You know what a thank offering was? It was just telling God thank you. And in the days of the temple, this meant taking an animal to the temple and sacrificing it, giving it back to God, just as a way of saying, thank you, Lord for what you've given or for what you've done or for who you are. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done. Psalm 35, 18 says this, I will give you thanks in the great congregation. I will praise you among a mighty throng. That is, for the Jews, giving thanks publicly, confessionally, in the midst of God's covenant people, this was a normative way of life. Psalm 50 as a psalm I've parked in for a while that's been particularly encouraging to me, uh, God in Psalm 50 talks to Israel. And they're getting kind of flustered about doing the right kind of sacrifices and offering enough animals, enough blood, etc. And God realizes they've got the wrong picture of things. 
So he tells them, guys, I don't need any of the flesh of those bulls, and I don't need to drink the blood of those goats. That's really not what it's about in the end. He says this, Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Pay your vows to the Most High. Do what you've said you'll do. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I'll rescue you and you'll honor me. So God says, here's a happy commandment equation. God says this, you're going to go through life and you'll face challenges you're not up to. So when that happens, call on me. When you call on me, I'm going to help you. And when I've helped you, you come back and give thanks. And that's the kind of offering I'm after. When we gather together on Sunday morning, we have a unique opportunity to do that very thing, to offer God the thanksgiving of praise, the sacrifice of thanksgiving. Here we can do that during open worship publicly, thanking God for what He's done, but we also do it when we sing. You know, if I'm in a church service, it's never happened here, I'm sure, and I hear anemic singing, I think we're not very thankful that we don't have much joy because we're not shouting or because we're not declaring those praises thankfully to God. Because I think when we remind ourselves of how things are, who we belong to and where we're going, we'd be with David and the psalmist. We're shouting. We're declaring freely, exuberantly, God's goodness to us and thanksgiving back to Him. Winding down here, the holy trinity of commands ends up focusing our eyes right back on Christ, the source of life. Joy is from Christ and it's in Christ. Prayer is communication with and focused on Christ and thanks are given to Christ and to God. So the life that is filled by obedience to these three happy commands is a life rooted in Christ and focused on heaven. Guys, this is life as good as we can get it on planet earth. Remember a week ago we said Jesus was our example in the way we interacted with others. Forgiveness and prayer especially, blessing those who may not be blessing us. It's the same thing with these two. Luke 10 is a great passage about these because it incorporates all three. But if you read in Luke 10, it says, Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit and then He prayed when He thanked God that God had hidden these things from the wise and intelligent of this world and revealed His things to babes. Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit. He prayed and in His prayer He thanked God for who God was and what He was doing in the world. Or related to prayer itself, you'll read in the Gospel accounts, Jesus gets up while it's dark before everybody else to what? To go out and pray, to talk to His dad. Jesus is the one who stays up all night while everyone's asleep to do what? To pray and talk to His dad. He's the one who says, I'm always doing those things the Father's doing. I'm in constant communication with my Father. Joy, prayer, thanksgiving were common to Jesus' life as a man on the earth. So, determine this. Determine to be an obedient Christian. Look up at your father and he says, be happy and pray. Unload yourself and rejoice in thanksgiving. You'll be better for it. Choose joy when you feel like crying and choose to pray when you're tempted to agonize. And choose to give thanks when you're tempted to worry. And guys, part of this is this. Never wait till you feel like doing something to obey. Because it may never come. This is true about forgiveness. We talked about last week. Praying for those who abuse you. It's true for these as well. You don't wait until your emotions feel thankful. You give thanks anyway. Your emotions will come along afterwards. Don't wait 
till you feel thankful. Give thanks and you will feel thankful. See if you don't find in these commandments, three happy commandments, a light and easy burden, a burden that really in the end is no burden at all. And if you want, last word by way of encouragement, if you want examples and encouragements to joy and to prayer and to thanks, park yourselves in the Psalms for just a little bit because it's all over there. I'd say you could study somebody's life. I was thinking about examples of this. The best example I could think of was the book of Psalms because when you're there, you'll see these themes over and over and over again. So be a good Christian, obey your dad, and be happy. Let's pray. Lord, I I am always amazed that it's not just that your commands lead to life, Lord. It's that in a world that castigates you and in our own minds when we believe things of you that aren't true, uh, you still, you remain unchanged and that unchanging, loyal love to us, Lord, it means life and more life and that you've not just accommodated us Lord when you came to the earth died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead but you're accommodating us today your spirit's in us and with us we clay cracked pots Lord who get just about everything wrong such that you have to even command us to something as simple as being happy as choosing delight and gladness Father, thanks that to follow you, to know your Son, is no burden at all. It is, in fact, the way and the truth and the life. And, Father, may we be found your happy servants, your delighted children, obeying you, honoring you, giving you thanks, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.